0: Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net.
1: Marco, Sean, welcome back. I, I, know. I was here. I was here on audio signals, and I was talking to myself. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sometimes I let you fly solo. It,
1: it was more like an echo signal that I was an getting. E- an echo signal. My own oh, feedback.
2: Did it sound like a whale or a dolphin? I think the yes. last one I heard was due that to too
1: ocean. about ocean sounds and music. I'm yeah,
2: I'm so sad. I missed that one.
1: Yeah, I think you but, would have liked that. But I think yeah. you're gonna like this one too.
2: I will like this one. I know that for a fact. And uh, it, it's a crypto of a different kind than uh, my, my background uh, has rooted me in. So yeah. th- there's cryptography, <laughs> right? Protecting data. But the, the, the inner bits of that, which I'm, I'm sure our guests will help us uh, better understand, have also been used to generate cryptocurrency. And yeah. uh, obviously, there's, there's a lot of hype around that and uh, it, it's pretty much prevalent and used. It seems like for everything, you, know, you can buy a house with cryptocurrency. You can.
1: I, I don't know if we're there, I but thought,
2: I, I'm pretty sure. I thought I saw that. I don't know.
1: Not not everybody's going to allow you that, I guess. Uh, but you know, that's that's why we have somebody that may have some answer to this. But mostly, I, I have done few of. podcast on audio signal lately where i am usually the 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 dumbest person in the in the room or in the conversation and lately I'm, i'm even really the one that doesn't know enough to be in the conversation but i like it because i try to get this basic understanding of of the topic and today with robert which we met through the mentor project uh yet another Mentor project fellow that, uh, that we got connected through that fantastic organization. He is going to tell us a little bit of uh, what is cryptocurrency, how it works, what can be done, what cannot be done. And because it's already two minutes that we're blobbling, the two of us, Robert, <laughs> welcome to the show.
3: Well, thank you for having me, Marco and Sean. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah. And first of all, congratulations. I know you're almost to the graduation. Uh, of your study. Although, as I mentioned before we started, based on your bio, it seems to me like you have already done way more than what I've done. And I graduated a long, long time ago. So a little bit about yourself.
3: Uh, Sure. Well, I'm an associate engineer with the uh, Filecoin Foundation, uh, where I work on education projects, uh, including a course we're launching uh, on July 11th that runs for four weeks that Uh, is basically blockchain software engineering, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, a little more later. Um, But yeah, I'm wrapping up my time at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm an electrical engineering and finance uh, background. Um, Before coming to Filecoin Foundation, I had launched a couple of startups. The first one um, is called Repurpose, and that won a big grant and launched in India and is still going strong. And that is a um, plastic credit platform. So it's kind of a social impact. And I would encourage anyone who's interested in that type of uh, uh, issue or, or environmental issues to go to uh, repurpose.global to learn about what they're doing. I'm no longer involved, but they're doing great. Um, and then uh, the second startup um, was called, we called it AlphaGora. And this was an SEC registered robo advisor uh, for crypto client cryptocurrency portfolios. So we were doing actively managed uh, quantitative strategies for our clients, and uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's the story there. So
1: there you go. And talking about story, that's going to be exactly the first uh, the first topic. Like I'm assuming a lot of people that are listening to this. episode they heard of course about bitcoin ethereum and all of that cryptocurrency i don't know how many are very knowledgeable about this so uh, if you can give us a, a little bit of an introduction to the topic and how we got from not having cryptocurrency to having cryptocurrency that'd be that'd be great
3: sure um so i actually uh some people joke that when i talk about this i start from genesis because uh, <laughs> I, go, I go all the way back and i talk about vacuum tube computers and all this stuff but um perhaps uh just for some historical background context uh, i'm sure your audience will be very familiar with richard Feynman, the uh, great professor from caltech and his uh Uh, amazing lecture out of nowhere uh, in the late 1950s um, called Plenty of Room at the Bottom uh, where, you know, at that time in America we were trying to build big things. We were trying to go to space. We were trying to beat the Soviets, go to the moon. Um, And he was talking about small things. Can we build tiny robots? Can we build tiny motors? Can we write the entire Encyclopedia Britannica on the head of a pin. Um, and that uh, that talk gave, basically, was the catalyst for um, the silicon run processes that make our modern computer chips. Uh, and from that, we get the transistor. Um, so we can move from vacuum tubes to much smaller um hardware that represents a zero or a one a binary uh, bit and um you know naturally now our iphones have as much uh um you know our iphone basically if our iphones were a vacuum tube computer from the 1940s they would have the same you would need a vacuum tube computer that is the size of the pentagon building in dc to have the same amount of computation that we have in our pocket today.
2: I do have one of those, thankfully.
3: Yeah. You you do? You carry it with you? (laughs) I carry it with
2: me. yes. It's in a backpack.
3: I believe it. Um, But the reason why I kind of go back to this is I think, uh, you know, oftentimes when we talk about cryptocurrency, you know, people go to the markets and then all of a sudden the plot is immediately lost. Um, And I think the, You know, what makes Bitcoin so interesting, uh, you know, naturally is not the uh, commodity market that has developed around it, but actually the technological and financial innovation um, that that, you know, has at least, uh, you know, the early adopters found to be so compelling. Um, So what what are those things? Um, You know, so the first Maybe, maybe we'll start with a little bit of how you can get a transaction kind of through on the Bitcoin network. So someone wants to send a Bitcoin transaction. Uh, this is a, a, a peer-to-peer transaction in that, let's say Marco wants to send Sean one Bitcoin. Well, that transaction, uh, the transaction details are sent to kind of a waiting area. And then there is a competition to add that transaction to the ledger, which we call the blockchain. And that competition looks something like this. There are thousands of computers all over the world that are quote unquote, maintaining the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, And they try to take that transaction detail and put it in a bit of memory that they've created on their computer, we call that bit of memory a block and you can have multiple transactions in that block. You can kind of see how we're getting the name blockchain. So this is where the block comes in. Um, and then what ends up happening is that that computer, uh, which has the bit of memory, which we call a block and includes this transaction. That's uh, one Bitcoin sent from Marco to Sean. Um, it, it does a number of things. First, the first thing it's going to do is it's going to check to make sure that Marco has not previously spent this Bitcoin that he's trying to send to Sean. And then he the, the, the computer is going to do something uh, that we call proof of work. And effectively what the computer is doing uh, is it's guessing a random number to some cryptographic puzzle. Um, and in doing so, it's spending electricity. So um, the reason for that will become very, very clear in just a moment. So where are we so far? So Marco wants to send a Bitcoin to Sean. It goes to this this global waiting area. We call it the mempool. Uh, Thousands of computers are competing to try to take that transaction data and put it in a bit of memory that they create. That bit of memory is called the block. They then check to make sure Marco hasn't spent this Bitcoin before. And they solve this cryptographic puzzle by guessing some random number. Um, is, so it, that was, is, it, is it
2: okay if I pause you quickly?
3: Robert? Yeah. Sure. There's,
2: there's a term that I often hear, mining.
3: Yes. And
2: how, how does that, it, is, it, is now the appropriate time to ask that? And is it related to this?
3: Yeah. So uh, I just described the mining process. Okay. That <laughs> is what this computer is. is uh, that's your miner, is this computer that has created this block. Um, So then what's going to happen is the miner that just created the block and has Marco's transaction to Sean in it, the miner is going to propose the block to the thousands of other computers on the Bitcoin network. And the other computers are going to more or less signal um, their acceptance of the block and in turn the approval of the transaction by building the next block uh, chronologically that references this block that this miner just created as the previous block. So that's how you get them chained together. So, um, what are the other miners also checking for? Well, they're checking to make sure that Marco's Bitcoin has not been previously spent. Um, and they're checking to make sure that the nonce, uh, is correctly solved, that it's the correct, the nonce being the cryptographic puzzle, that it's the correct solution. Now, why would we want both of those things? Well, that's the real innovation of Bitcoin. You are checking to make sure that the Bitcoin hasn't been previously spent because in kind of legacy uh, financial systems or banking systems, we had this issue of the double spend problem where people could, because their accounts were siloed from each other, could actually get away with sending, uh, you know, the same hundred dollars to two different accounts um, and this is naturally a really big problem for a number of reasons, not only because it ends up costing the bank uh, money that this account never had, um, uh, but also because, you know, effectively that account is uh, putting money to the money supply that never existed. The and second.
2: So the, the solution to that problem was time, right? You, you have this- to wait for one or the other transactions to complete, delaying the trend, one or the other transaction, right?
3: Exactly. Um, So the time, the time machine, you know, now the bank has to, uh, you know, basically three days later, the bank realizes that, uh, oh, this person spent money they they didn't have, um, you know, and uh, yeah. So naturally there are some uh, manual solutions uh, for this, but uh, Bitcoin kind of automates this solution to the double spend because any block that has a transaction with Bitcoin that's been previously spent in previous blocks, well, the block will be rejected. So the other miners will not start building the blocks um, uh, that reference the proposed block. Um, so that's the first really interesting innovation of Bitcoin. And by the way, it's probably worth me mentioning how this is accomplished. And this is a quote from uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, the anonymous creator of Bitcoin's white paper, Uh, is that um, Bitcoin is actually defined in the white paper simply as a chain of digital signatures. Um, So every time a transaction is sent from one party to another, you know, Marco sends uh, a Bitcoin to Sean. Well, Marco is actually signing with a digital signature um, to send that, that Bitcoin over to Sean. And that Bitcoin that's being sent is basically the whole history of all of the signatures from the first wallet that ever had that Bitcoin, you know, from one wallet to the next. Um, And uh, Sean, you being a cryptographer, we could talk about public private uh, key encryption and how that's accomplished. But naturally you could imagine the public key is the public address. So Marco is sending uh, the Bitcoin to Sean's public address Um, and then Marco is signing, uh, using the private key that's associated with that, uh, public address. And that's, that's basically what a Bitcoin actually is. It's a chain of digital signatures. Um, so, so that's the first innovation is that, uh, Bitcoin has solved the double spend problem through this, uh, way of checking the previous signatures to make sure it hasn't been previously spent. Um. And then the other interesting innovation that this mining process and really it's two innovations, uh, that the mining process introduces, one of which should be abundantly clear. Um, and the other, I haven't talked about yet because we haven't talked about why anyone would even mine Bitcoin to begin with. Um, so the first innovation is that Bitcoin, uh, presents, uh, more or less a solution to the Byzantine generals problem. We have thousands of computers all over the world that agree on the current state of the Bitcoin ledger at the same time. And that is something that uh, is, is very, very interesting for those who are interested in uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, network systems and uh, how computers interact with each other and how you can store on two different computers the same exact file. Well, this mining process kind of enables uh, some some type of solution to this Byzantine Generals problem where... All of the computers, all, uh, really a consensus, a majority of the computers at any given time will agree as to the current, which block is the most recent block and the current state of the blockchain. The third innovation uh, that this mining process uh, gives way to, and... Maybe why people, maybe why the commodity market has developed around it, and again, this is not financial advice, and certainly I am not saying any of this uh, in my capacity as uh, working for file. I'm not saying this in my capacity working for Filecoin Foundation, but just from an academic standpoint, you know, any course we teach, this has to be mentioned, is that you know miners, miners uh, are actually, you know, they're doing this process. Um, because they're earning newly minted Bitcoin that hasn't been in circulation yet. Um, so that is the kind of incentive to be a Bitcoin miner. They're not just spending electricity to solve that cryptographic puzzle for no reason. They spend electricity. They earn Bitcoin if their block gets approved. That is the business that they're running. Um, and so that's why you, you hear a lot about how you know Bitcoin miners so they are trying to you know, use uh, really, really cheap electricity, or, you know, they're in a jurisdiction that has really cheap electricity, or, you know, uh, some uh, college kids in a dorm room, you know, turn their dorm into a Bitcoin miner, because, you know, their college isn't uh, charging them an electrical bill, or they're setting up their own solar panel farms to to mine this Bitcoin. Um, You know, that's the business model, spend electricity, and earn Bitcoin. Now, there's two things we should talk about um, uh, on each of those, and then I will, uh, you know, maybe hand the mic back to uh, both of you. But, um, you know, why spend elect? Why require that there's some electrical spend through the solving of this cryptic- crypt- cryptographic puzzle? That's the first question. Um, and the second question is: Okay, newly minted Bitcoin. What's the deal with the money supply? How does that work? So maybe we talk about the latter first, every 210,000 blocks, the Bitcoin mining reward, this is the amount of Bitcoin that the miners are going to earn, you know, as a thank you for minting this new block and approving these transactions, the miners' reward actually cuts in half every 210,000 blocks, and that's approximately every four years. So it started at a 50 Bitcoin mining reward. And then four years later, it uh, cut down to 25. Then four years later, it was 12 and a half. And right now it stands at six and a quarter. So what this means for the money supply of Bitcoin is that the total Bitcoin in circulation actually follows this kind of inverse log function. And eventually we're going to get to a maximum of almost 21 million Bitcoin. So what is this supposed to do? Well, uh, you know, this is supposed to introduce some level of scarcity to Bitcoin. So that's maybe why it's interesting. And, um, you know, we could talk about kind of the grievances uh, uh, around central banking and uh, what was actually in the genesis, the first block of Bitcoin, what Satoshi Nakamoto, There is an article that Satoshi Nakamoto references about the, central banks in the 2008 financial crisis. But we we could come back to that. But there's definitely some of that, uh, you know, there's definitely some of that motivation about Bitcoin to create some asset that has scarcity and is maybe deflationary um, uh, rather than, uh, you know, the currencies that our central banks manage, which have some level of inflation, Um, You know, the more independent the central bank is, the the lower inflation tends to be. But we're living in an inflationary environment right now. So I think uh, your audience is uh, very familiar with what, you know, all the spending that's gone on the past two years, uh, all the printing of the money. And now we're facing the effects of this. Um, So that's the the first thing that's interesting about Bitcoin is this money supply. And then the second thing uh, is why require that uh, the miners actually spend that electricity. Well, uh, in spending the electricity to solve this cryptographic puzzle, this nonce, they're actually spending money. So as a consequence, it's actually cheaper for a Bitcoin miner to simply add one block and only solve one puzzle than to try to uh To try to solve five puzzles or ten puzzles and try to reverse blocks and try to uh, rewrite the history of Bitcoin. You could imagine there's no central authority here. I, you know, there's thousands of computers all over the world that are competing um, competing to add these blocks. That's thousands of computers that don't know each other that are helping maintain the ledger. There's no one uh, bank that can uh, manage uh, transactions. so, Um, naturally, if you're using Bitcoin, you wouldn't want a transaction. Let's say Marco sends this Bitcoin to Sean today. Well, in five days, you're going to want that transaction to, to still be there. So this, uh, cryptographic, uh, puzzle that requires electricity, electricity spend actually ensures that, um, you know, more or less there's, uh, no rewriting of history that the transactions are immutable and they can't be, uh, reversed.
1: So I have a quick question, which is, if my dog allows me to talk, why do we have different kind of cryptocurrency? Like it sounds already complicated the way it is, but like how is that Ethereum came into place and competing maybe with Bitcoin and then there is always a, a new one that is on, on the same blockchain and so forth?
3: Sure. Um, you know, Bitcoin is the first cryptocurrency as we understand them. Uh, that uses this blockchain method of approving transactions and uh, maintaining the ledger. Um, so Bitcoin's the first. I will say there are pre-Bitcoin, uh, maybe we call them digital currencies or virtual currencies like HashCash and E-gold, some of which are actually referenced in the Bitcoin white paper. So, um, you know, and you could also think, uh, you know, there are currencies that were involved in games uh, before 2008 uh, in video games. So, Um, you know, digital currency experimentations have been going on since before Bitcoin came about. Um, that being said, after Bitcoin, what made Bitcoin the most compelling was this mining method, uh, and this decentralized nature. Um, it it really accomplished something that the previous, uh, you know, attempts were not able to, but, uh, so What's interesting also about Bitcoin is it's an open source project. So anyone can become a miner. Anyone can open a Bitcoin wallet and transact with Bitcoin. Um, And anyone can uh, serve as a software engineer and volunteer their time to contribute to the Bitcoin software. Um, And you can imagine, you know, someone has an interesting idea for the Bitcoin software. Maybe uh, they want to, you know, just... Totally random examples, but uh, maybe they want to increase the size of uh, the Bitcoin block. Remember, I said that's a bit of memory. Maybe it's helpful to, I, yeah, I'm not taking a side either way, but maybe a, a software engineer thinks it's helpful to increase the size of the block, or maybe they think it's helpful to increase the total money supply or change how uh, you know the miner's reward is. All that would take is a software engineer proposing the code and then a consensus, more than uh, half of the miners, basically saying, okay, we'll take the software update. Um, So so Bitcoin is open source. uh, And what that means is other teams, other software engineers were able to take Bitcoin and innovate on top of it um, and create whole new projects. Um, That use, uh, you know, a lot of the same uh, technologies, but maybe push the, you know, push the boundaries a little further. Uh, Naturally, Ethereum is probably the best, uh, Ethereum probably the most commonly known. Um, Ethereum, kind of like Bitcoin. I think uh, what makes it different is that on top of the Ethereum blockchain, you actually have a state machine. Um, and this is more or less, you know, in the early days of Ethereum, it was marketed as the world computer that this was, uh, uh, yeah, the world computer. And why is that? Well, the state machine is basically, uh, you know, it's a virtual machine built on top of a blockchain. And what the Ethereum virtual machine allows you to do is to write these things called smart contracts. So imagine marco and sean you know maybe they they like to follow formula one and uh marco yeah okay all right so marco is uh how did you know that (laughs) uh, marco being italian he's probably rooting for ferrari and uh sean is let's go with team mercedes here and uh uh you know marco and sean they want to place a bet and they want to you know marco says okay i bet 100 bitcoin that Ferrari is gonna win the Monaco Grand Prix. And Sean says, okay, I'll bet hundred Bitcoin that Mercedes is going to uh, win the, the Monaco Grand Prix. Um, well, what you would have to do, and you know, naturally I know nothing uh, about gambling, but let's just say for all intents and purposes, What the two of you would have to do with either, you know, either you have a gentleman's agreement or maybe you don't know each other and you get an attorney to draft a contract or you go to a gambling house and you want to put that Bitcoin in escrow and have the gambling house automate, you know, basically after the race, the gambling house sends the money. Well, uh, to the winner. Well, you know, the attorney for the contract is going to cost some money and the gambling house might want to take, you know, some fee for their escrow services. What Ethereum would allow you to do is you can write a smart contract where each of you would send, instead of your Bitcoin, you would send your 100 Ethereum to the smart contract, which has a public address itself. And the smart contract is a bit of code. That's exactly what it sounds like. It's a contract that says when Ferrari wins, Marco will get all 200 of this Ethereum. And when Mercedes wins, Sean will get all 200 of this Ethereum. And, uh, you know, more or less, you would have some some way of, you know, scraping the internet from that data uh, of who won the race. And once that data is inputted to the smart contract, the smart contract executes, and that 200 Ether that was held in escrow automatically goes to the wallet. Uh, let's say Mercedes wins. Well, congratulations, Son. You get the 200 Ether. So, um you could imagine I like, I like this podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you get two hundred ether. Uh <laughs> you know. um you could imagine, you know, gambling, uh, you know, I we just use this as an example, but you could imagine any type of business logic can be automated with uh with the smart contract. And there are many examples we could talk about. Uh um You know, but you could have all sorts of different uh, things. For example, we call these, uh, maybe, well, okay, maybe I'll get into this uh, a little bit, but in 2016, we had the first DAO. Now, right now, a lot of people are probably hearing a lot about different, this is D-A-O, DAO. So this is an acronym that stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. So there are a few that are, you know, kind of popular, I won't name them, but, um, you know, certainly are known to the industry. Um, But the first DAO, what we call the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, uh, was from 2016. And what this DAO was meant to do, basically, you'd have, you know, hundreds, thousands of investors all over the world, and you would send your ether to the DAO. Now, this DAO is a collection of smart contracts. What happens is you send your Ether to the DAO, and based on the proportion of total Ether sent to the DAO, the percentage of Ether you sent, that is the percent of vote you get. And then, you know, with people you don't know all over the world, people would vote on what projects to invest this Ether in, and you would have your proportional vote. Now, what happened with this DAO is that You know, this is the early days of Ethereum and we didn't have uh, smart contract auditing or even, uh, you know, uh, even uh, indexing, public indexing of the blockchain that made it easy for people to look at what was going on. Um, So what ended up happening was uh, a software engineer, uh, you know, they call it the DAO hack, but it really wasn't a hack at all. It was just an exploit of, uh, you know, maybe hastily written code. Well, one person was able to just siphon off, you know, somewhere, I think you know, $160 million or something of that money that was sent to the DAO. So, um, you know, what this led to was a uh, big controversy. A lot of people lost money. Um, Vitalik, the creator of Ethereum and the, um, you know, the Ethereum software engineers said, okay, um, you know. Uh, We have a choice here. We could let this uh, theft stand, or we can copy the whole uh, Ethereum blockchain up until now, except we'll only go up to the block right before this DAO was launched, and we'll just start building on uh, another blockchain that is a copy that has everything up until this DAO was launched, and we'll just go from there. So that's what they ended up doing. So that latter version of Ethereum... Uh, which today is called Ethereum. And this is the Ethereum that Vitalik and the Ethereum Foundation and the Ethereum developers mostly support and where most of the applications, by the way, are built. This latter, this copy of the original Ethereum is actually, uh, yeah, it's actually not the original Ethereum. The original Ethereum is called Ethereum Classic and Ethereum Classic still has this theft on the chain um so this is uh you know something that's very interesting about the open source nature by the way of blockchains, that you could copy these things and
2: uh those revisions those um i know them as branches in traditional coding terms what what are those called do they matter for the general yeah currency user
3: yeah so um these are called forks um so I guess we'd call this type of fork a hard fork, but uh, more or less you have, uh, you know, let's say you have a group of miners that want to accept a software update uh, or, you know, just want to start building uh, on a different version of uh, the blockchain that they're building on. Well, some of them could just uh, declare that they're going to start building on a different chain. And if enough miners uh, are building on both chains, well, then guess what? You get to keep both chains. Um, so this happens all the time. You know, we have Bitcoin cash is uh, some type of hard fork of Bitcoin. And, uh, but what's interesting is if you had a wallet on the original Ethereum classic up until the block before the Dow was launched, well, when the blockchain is copied to make the new Ethereum, everyone who had a wallet on the original Ethereum also has a wallet on the new Ethereum. So um, uh, this is, you know, some people when Bitcoin Cash was created and forked from the original Bitcoin, well, they got some free Bitcoin Cash uh, in there. You know, they have wallets, uh, you know. So this is a very interesting phenomenon. Tell me. Yeah.
1: I don't know if it's connected, I'm assuming. But when when you look at the metaverse or other... Uh, you know gaming i mean I, I see that they create their own currency right so ba- base i i read sometimes on the ethereum blockchain is that still considered a fork or how do you like how, how uh, w- what's the function of that why not using ethereum why not yeah. using you know and making a, a, a proprietary um, currency for that
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Marco. So I can't speak to the metaverse, uh, but um, actually on Ethereum, with smart contracts on Ethereum, you can create your own currency um, Hmm. and they're called tokens. And there are actually, um, there are standards, there are smart contract standards. So you would write a smart contract um, and there are smart contract standards for this. And your tokens can be one of two options. They could be uh, fungible, so that you know naturally uh, these things are, you know, one token. Let's call it Marco Coin. One Marco Coin equals one Marco Coin. You could divide it into as many uh, decimals as you want, and um, you know it's it's fungible. This is an ERC twenty token, so these are fungible tokens. Um, and maybe many in your audience may know these. These fungible ERC20 tokens were used for the ICO craze of the uh, 2017 2018 ICO craze. So that's what uh, a lot of these were used for. But um, yeah, you can create Marco coin uh, with a uh, smart contract. And now you might want to say, you know, where does the smart contract come into play? Well, with the smart contract, you can choose either to airdrop your Marco coin uh, for free to a set of wallets of your choosing. Um, or you can, you know, just like with the Dow, it took, uh, ether as an input and gave those wallets a, pr- a proportional vote. Well, you can take ether as an input to the ERC 20 contract, and then in return, uh, send an exchange of Marco coin back to the wallet that sent the ether. Um, So that's what these kind of ERC-20 tokens are. Um, And those are the fungible assets. So there are many, many, uh, you know, there are many ERC tokens that are used on, you know, that were created and are used on Ethereum for all sorts of reasons. Um, Another reason those uh, ERC-20 tokens, these fungible tokens were created was as a kind of holding, uh, you know, until it could be exchanged for a actual cryptocurrency on a different blockchain. Um, so they could be like, uh, redeemable, uh, uh, tokens, um, you know, basically redeemable for a one to one for the crypto. Once a blockchain, you know, launches later. Um, so that's one thing. And naturally there are all sorts of, uh, all sorts of issues related to this that I won't get into, but if you have attorneys in your audience, I'm sure they'd love to talk to you about the, uh, securities laws and what it has to do with raising uh, money and how that played out in 2017 and 2018. So a lot of interesting cases. The Howey test is certainly relevant. And, uh, uh, you know, anyway, but that's, I think, beyond the scope. The other type of, of uh, currency you could create on Ethereum is the ERC-721, uh, token, which is your non-fungible token. So this is a family of tokens that are each one unique and not divisible. And this is how you have things like collectibles, like CryptoKitties. And uh, Marco, mm-hmm. I think it sounds like you were involved with uh, some NFT purchasing. Well, I, I,
1: as I, yeah, let's see if I can make some money from my photography or something like that. And I think Sean had the same idea. Then we look at the gas cost to do it. I'm like, hmm, I don't know. Does, am I, I going to make that money back? So we were trying to figure out things. That's why we know a little bit about it. But, if, of course, we are aware of how the non-fungible tokens, NFTs, is everybody's mouth right now. And yeah. I don't know. I mean, they, I think it's a great thing for artists, from what I understand. Um Maybe not a good thing if you pay... for something, and now today it's worth uh, $2. But I guess that's the risk of collecting.
3: (laughs) Right. Well, uh, what's interesting about these non-fungible tokens is that the token, so this is the, you know, the cryptocurrency representation of this ART, is on, let's say it's on Ethereum. Let's say you chose Ethereum for your NFTs. Well, the actual ART file Usually isn't stored on the block on the blockchain where the token is. There's actually a link in the manifest of the NFT to a different platform like you know Filecoin IPFS, uh, where the actual art file is stored. So, um, so so yeah, there are actual art files that are associated with this NFT, and uh, they're stored on a different platform, but you know, the wallet, the Ethereum wallet shows that you own that piece of art.
1: And, and again, it's a contract, right? It's nothing more than a contract.
3: It's a contract, but, I, you know, I think I, I like to talk about the, you know, I like to talk about kind of non-crypto analogs when we talk about this. Consider the antiquities market.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Provenance is the major issue. Uh, But with NFTs, for example, let's say, you know, instead of your NFT representing your digital art file that's stored on Filecoin IPFS, let's say your NFT actually is associated with, you know, some type of antiquity in the real world. Well, guess what? Marco, let's say Marco owns the NFT associated with this antiquity. Let's say he wants to sell the antiquity. He sells it to Sean. He transfers not only, you know, not only the antiquity, whatever it is, but also the NFT to Sean. Well, what did we say Bitcoin was? It's a change you know, signature. You can actually go to the Bitcoin blockchain and with any amount of Bitcoin trace all its ownership back to its, um, to the Bitcoin's minting. Well, you could do the same with NFTs. And all of a sudden we've created, um, you know, we've created a uh, a a system where provenance is guaranteed. No one is. No one can manipulate the documentation because it's the NFT token. It's you know blockchains are open and transparent, so we can all see. We can all see who has owned this NFT previously, um, and we know the ownership back to the beginning. Uh, so this is you know really a consequential. You know NFTs are in the news a lot, and uh, you know there's a lot of uh, you know modern art, but there's certainly applications for uh, other uh, other consequential. You know, there, there's certainly applications in other areas of art that is consequential. Antiquities being one of them, and I think this provenance, you know, it's a unique aspect of the blockchain uh, that makes that possible. Um, can you can
2: you talk to me more about the the, the filecoin and the storing of uh, the digital? art and I don't know it could be digital anything perhaps I don't know if it just if it's limited to art what I'm envisioning is uh, tell me how this works but I'm envisioning people setting up galleries right where perhaps you can display your art in a in a uh, NFT enabled Filecoin gallery and and I don't know maybe charge people to, <laughs> to come visit that museum or galleries I don't know well, how, how, what's the what's the reason well, what's the uh, the operational model for uh, for this whole system? Well, yeah. What, what's the purpose?
3: Yeah, or what... you can have your gallery in the metaverse, right? You know, yeah,
2: that's... yeah. There's that too. Yeah.
3: <laughs> um, you can get the
1: entire Uffizi <laughs> Museum in there, the Louvre. Or...
3: I believe it. I believe it. Um, so, so Filecoin IPFS IPFS standing for Interplanetary File System. Um, the interplanetary file system. Uh, okay, well let me let me just backtrack. So um, on the internet today, on the internet today, we use. You know, people want to set up a website. They probably go to something like AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services, or Google Cloud, and that's where they get all their servers, and that's where they host their website. Um, you know, that's that's all well and good. Um, the other thing about the internet is that we use on the internet, you may be familiar, obviously your audience knows about this, but we have um, IP addresses. So these IP addresses are location addresses um, associated with your computer, your device, your server, whatever. What Filecoin IPFS aims to do is most present a different model for the internet where instead of having location-based address address we have content addresses and i'll kind of explain what that is in a moment um and instead of having you know maybe aws or google cloud or some central uh you know one of three major big players that can host uh our websites or any of our data well anyone can 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 offer the free memory on their devices to host or store information. So so what does this mean? So we have the interplanetary file system. This is the hypermedia protocol that allows files to be exchanged between devices on the Filecoin IPFS network. And so this is basically uh, the communication uh, protocol. uh, storing or reading uh, files and then you have filecoin which is this cryptocurrency that is kind of uh, a second layer to this platform so what does filecoin ipfs enable together well it enables anyone with a laptop and freeze free memory on their device to actually offer that memory for rent and it allows anyone else who has files, who have files they want to store to actually store their files on that person's device and actually rent the space. Uh, And Filecoin is the coin that's used for that. And there's, you know, Bitcoin we call the mining process proof of work. Um, With Filecoin, IPFS, we have uh, uh, different proofs, proof of uh, uh, one of which being Proof of space, time, and the other being r- proof of replication. These guarantee to the uh, you know together those guarantee to the uh, uh, the person who's renting the space and storing the file that their files are there. Um, and then the storage is it, file, in
2: simple simple mind like I have. Is this a blockchain enabled S three?
3: It's blockchain enabled, uh, more or less AWS. But anyone can serve as a as a storage provider. Um, and our storage distributed, providers, yeah. distributed, yeah, yeah. Our storage providers are now, you know, we don't, you know, instead of miners, we have storage providers on Filecoin.
1: It's like on. an Airbnb. It's
3: <laughs> Airbnb for computer memory. That's absolutely right.
1: <laughs> absolutely right. It's like, hey, I have a, an extra, you know, independent uh, entrance, <laughs> little home. I'm going to rent it. You want absolutely. it? Absolutely,
3: absolutely. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so. Marco's analogy is spot on. It's Airbnb for, um, uh, you know, it's Airbnb for computer memory. But I hope we
1: better, we better, better warranties and security.
3: Yeah. Airbnb. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, you know, naturally the, uh, uh, the blockchain aspect to that right. and the transparency no, aspect to this makes it uh, very compelling. Um, something of interest is that, you uh, of all the NFTs, there are 64 over 64 million stored on Filecoin IPFS. So the tokens are maybe on Ethereum and uh, uh, the actual art files are on Filecoin IPFS. Um, there are some uh, very interesting partnerships that uh, have been developed where uh, big amounts of data are being stored on Filecoin IPFS. I think some of those that are uh, public and interesting are... Um, uh, we, there's, uh, the internet archive is putting huge data sets on Filecoin IPFS. Harvard's libraries are putting large data sets. New York city is putting large data sets on Filecoin IPFS. So these seem to be the types of use case that IPFS is useful for. Now, something archives. archives yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Don't dominion positive, but how about like, uh, we, we talk a lot about healthcare and some of our other shows mm-hmm. and. Access to medical records, so right. X-rays and scans. Some of it archived, but you want to have it access accessible uh, in real time as well.
3: Yeah. So, uh, Sean, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up. Uh, naturally, my knowledge, uh, you know, healthcare in particular, is beyond my knowledge. But um, there are two things I would want to say about records. Um, so, I mentioned. So, one is related to filecoin IPFS, and one is related maybe to Uh, Ethereum, or really any blockchain. Uh, So with Filecoin IPFS, something that's very interesting is that I had mentioned that instead of uh, the location-based addressing that the internet uses, we use content addressing on Filecoin IPFS. So what does that mean? Every file has a unique identifier instead of it being stored at some unique location. So, for example... Um, let's say you have uh, a photo of a beagle. Uh, well, instead of going to puppies.com forward slash beagle.jpg, uh, this beagle photo has some unique, uh, you know, some amount of uh, characters string um, that represents that photo. And the file is actually, uh, you know, every file has a unique identifier, a unique content address. And this is important because if someone manipulated this beagle photo, for example, they put a birthday hat on this beagle photo. Well, guess what? The content identifier is going to change. So there's some level of uh, guarantee and trust about the files being tampered with uh, with Filecoin IPFS, and that's one of the main goals. Um, and also, by the way, the content identifier. If you you know if you know what file you're looking for for will tell you, without you having to open the file, something about the file such that you know the file is what you're looking for, as opposed to on the internet we use today, let's say you go to www.puppies.beagle.jpg, uh, but you've been tricked, and you see a photo of a chihuahua instead, right? So there's no nothing related to the naming of the file uh, as to what, uh, you know, what's actually at the, you know, what is the file, right? So, This is something interesting about Filecoin IPFS. It uses content addressing, and uh, the idea is that it'll make for a more efficient Internet. You won't have many redundancies, many different websites hosting the same photo of a beagle. Um, So that's one thing that may be interesting about uh, records is that uh, this content addressing uh, certainly is a very interesting solution to making sure records are not tampered with.
2: Yeah, the integrity.
3: Always, integrity. Always a hot.
1: Robert, time. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop Sean because if you could start going in security with them, you're gonna be time. here for a very 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 long time. I and believe. and I, first of all, fascinating. I love the way you simplify and you use metaphor and real case study to understand the whole, you know, ephemeral <laughs> thing that uh, or abstract concept that we work with, which are very easy for you to understand and with, you know, engineer minds and. And uh, and programmers and and people that work in the background, but for the everyday person, I I always think that when you bring an example of the everyday life application, it always helps. So number one, you're welcome to come back and talk more with us about specific topics. Of course, expect we said it's going to be thirty five minutes. We're at fifty, and and <laughs> we haven't even we haven't even scrapped the surface. Right. So I hope. I hope the audience is enjoying these. And honestly, you can come back anytime. I know you mentioned a course that you have on July 11th. So I would like for you to take a couple of minutes of what is left here to, to present that. Because, of course, there's a lot to learn. And I want to give you the opportunity to to present that.
3: Sure. Well, thank you, Marco. I appreciate uh, you allowing me to have a plug. You know? Actually, uh, for yes. the audience... For the audience, uh, Marco asked me to come on this podcast a year and a half ago, and I didn't have anything <laughs> to promote. so, <laughs> so, so You're uh, promoting
1: your knowledge anyway, but yeah, if you no, want to add this to that, yeah. please.
3: So, yeah. So, um, we uh, Filecoin Foundation, you know, our mission is to uh, support the Filecoin ecosystem. And, you know, we give grants to developers. We run the Filecoin Plus program, and I would encourage your audience to check these uh, things out. Something else we do is education. Uh, So we're, you know, we have developer advocates that, uh, uh, you know, help software engineers building on Filecoin, IPFS, and um, are writing tutorials all the time. We're running a course uh, starting July 11th. It runs for four weeks. um, And it's going to cover, you know, in a little, in much more depth, uh, some of the things we've covered here today. Uh, We'll spend a week on Bitcoin, a week on Ethereum, a week on Filecoin IPFS, and you'll notice throughout the talk, I kind of talked about how, uh, you know, Bitcoin is, uh, all these blockchains are open and transparent. Well, you know, that's something that's interesting too. You can actually look at uh, every wallet address, look at how much uh, crypto is in those accounts, look at the whole history of the transactions, and so the fourth week will be a little bit of uh, data science. Um, we're going to be focusing on some interesting applications in this class and actually one that ties into Sean's most recent question. Um, so the the assignments the students will do, they'll build a voting machine on Ethereum with uh, anonymous voting, which is a really, really interesting use case. I think one of the most consequential. Um, they'll build their own NFT pet store. They'll be writing both ERC-721 and ERC-20 token contracts, so both non-fungible and fungible token contracts as a part of that. Uh, They'll do a data science lab, and then they'll build on Filecoin IPFS uh, a uh, decentralized version of Uber, like a rideshare. Um, And, you know, our hope is that each of these assignments shows something interesting about the blockchain. Um, Certainly with the rideshare, it'll show... Uh, what it's like to build on a decentralized platform instead of a centralized uh, instead of with centralized servers with the voting machine um you know this is kind of a record uh, you know record, uh, record storage uh, use case naturally uh, uh, sean but um you know I, I think uh one of the most promising aspects of blockchain, and I think maybe we'll we could close with this but I, and naturally, I encourage everyone to go to corise.com. That's c o r excuse me c o r i s e.com and look for our our course. Uh, it's called Web Three Applications and Filecoin IPFS. And uh, I hope everyone will join us on July 11. Um, but uh, you know, maybe to close it out, I think you know this record keeping is certainly one of the most compelling use cases of blockchain. Here's why. You no longer need to have the vendor and the owner of information to be the same, uh, the same person or the same entity. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take an example of a university. Let's say you went to university and you became an attorney or a doctor, uh, but then a war came to your country and your university was destroyed. Well where do you go right now for your credentials Well, you contact the university and have them send your transcripts or they send you a letter saying yes you graduated from here but if the university no longer exists do your records disappear too that's the question with blockchain because of its immutable nature because of its open nature at any time a wallet can represent that university and that wallet can actually you know more or less accredit another wallet, let's say it's a student's wallet with their credentials, with their degree, with their transcript, so that even if the university no longer exists, we know that at that point in time, that university was legitimate and it was issuing these credentials and this wallet has this credential and that's all this person needs to show. And so more or less the vendor being the university no longer needs to own the data being the transcript now, a different wallet can own the transcript, uh, and and we know it's legitimate because of, uh, you know, the mining process, the open nature, this, that, and the other thing. So um, there are a lot of very interesting use cases. I think this identity uh, record-keeping use case is one of the most compelling and certainly one that, uh, you know, we hope to see. We've seen a lot of uh, projects related to that, but certainly we hope to see more. But anyway... Um, voting voting will be the record keeping uh use case that we study and build together in the co-rise course so we hope everyone joins us for that so. uh,
2: super cool way better than reading a book and answering a bunch of questions in an exam <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. there's no exams in this course i can promise <laughs>
1: cool.
2: no nah, and, and the use cases are many i would imagine um and I'm just, I know it's its not on the blockchain, but you, we already get our tickets in our wallets, right, to, to travel, things like that. So why not get our degrees that so we can, I presume, even show the courses we took and the grades we got and and that support the degree, right? So there's actually extra detail in there. If we can put all that on the chain too, uh, we, have, we have even more information to share. Um, speaking of share information, everybody check out co-rise.com. Uh, join Robert and crew for, uh, for all the learnings there on blockchain and, and the coins and everything that's going on and the use cases that they uh, support. Uh, we'll include notes in our, uh, in our show here for, uh, well, certainly to connect with Robert on social media and uh, through the foundation and on the course and anything else that Robert thinks uh, would be useful for folks listening today. And of course, uh, on audio signals, we can talk about anything and everything uh, on and off the blockchain. <laughs> it could be music on or off the blockchain, food on or off the blockchain.
1: And you know you know what? Everything, the more I, I get into understanding the, the blockchain and the smart contract, I can see the application to pretty much anything we do in our life. I mean, we live yeah. a digital We're life. I have stories
2: I'm, of authenticity, of... Uh, of Funny enough, years ago, authenticity of baby formula in China <laughs> it was a huge use case. Yeah,
1: yeah. And for the record, I'm not sending you a bitcoin. Uh, I've already. Robert... Uh,
2: I earned two hundred. I
1: know. You just got that. go yeah. so figure. Yeah. yeah, better against okay. Ferrari. Are you kidding yeah. me? Okay. No
2: it gets me 200 million.
1: <laughs> All right, Robert, thank you so much. Thank you again. Uh, uh, shout out to the Mentor Project, a great yes. organization and uh, proud to be part of it. And Robert, anytime you want to come back, have another conversation, always welcome. I, I really love the way in, on how you present this complex uh, matter and, and make it understandable. So thank you so much.
3: Uh, thank you, Marco, Sean, it's been a pleasure. And uh, thanks for indulging me.
0: Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family and colleagues.